Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Asha, you've been described as a part-time GP, a weight-inclusive campaigner, a leading expert in weight stigma, and also Britain's most outrageous doctor. Was, I'm glad you didn't forget that bit. That was the most... No, I was, not, I was absolutely going to bring that one in. Which of those terms um, most resonates with you, or how would you describe yourself? I, I mean, obviously, I am most pleased about Britain's most outrageous doctor. It is, you know... Um, and someone wrote to me yesterday, actually, and said, oh, I found you um, because I watched a YouTube video about you where you were described. It wasn't Britain's most outrageous doctor. This was a different video about me where I was considered the most dangerous doctor in the world, apparently. And uh, she wrote to me and said, I mean, to achieve that kind of recognition means you must be caught, you know, you must be. I can't remember the exact words, but turning a lot of heads or like, you know, cause, being very disruptive. It, it was essentially what she was trying to say. And yes, I think most importantly, I think I am a disruptor, uh, but, I, but I am a doctor. Like, I, I mean, I qualified from medical school, from Butts London Medical School in 2003. I've been a GP. I'm on the GMC register since 2009. Um, and, you know, until relatively recently, I was working a part-time, to, to be honest, I'm yet to meet a GP that works full-time in 2023. It's so difficult. And even the people I knew that were working full-time, full-time is actually four days a week in GP land, not five, nobody works five, but even four days a week is becoming too much for most people because all of us are essentially chronically burnt out. And um, I, when I realised how burnt out I was, and I realized, I mean, one of the, one of the features of burnout is compassion fatigue. And I realized that I was sitting in front of patients whom I have, you know, I've always, I went into medicine to help people. Um, it wasn't for the status. It wasn't because my parents were doctors. It wasn't for any other reason other than I really wanted to help people. And the moment I realized I lack the ability to feel any compassion anymore, any, uh, you know, I just, I'm listening and all I'm thinking is how do I get to through this to the next patient, I realized it wasn't safe to be around patients because that's not what you want from a doctor. You don't want your doctor to not care. And so I took myself away and I've been off with burnout now for over two years and have been doing a bit of activism. And, you know, this is how I've got into medical weight stigma and, and all of the sort of, I don't know, education and activism that I'm doing. So I'm aware of, of your work and your position, your beliefs, but some people might, might not be. Can you paint a picture of what you believe to be the case when it comes to, to, to weight loss and body composition, just so you can set the scene? Because I've got tons of questions I want to ask you, as I'm sure you can imagine. But before we dive into them, if you could just tell us a little bit about your beliefs to, to help people who don't know about you. Mm. Okay, let's try and shrink it down into little bite-sized chunks that can, <laughs> that can people go. So I was, just like everyone else, believed that being 
fat, and I'm going to use the term fat as a very neutral descriptor to describe people who are kind of higher weight. Um, because, you know, once you get into the whole like overweight, underweight, well, what's a normal weight? And, you know, it gets tricky. So fat is the word that I'm using. Fat is a higher weight individual. Um, and so I, I, I grew up in the same country the rest of us have grown up. I've listened to the same stories being told over and over again since childhood. And then I went to medical school. I genuinely believed that being fat was bad for your health. Um, and you know, that's quite a very, it's a very broad sweeping statement, but that's what I believed. And that's what people are told. It's bad for your health. And I went through, as I said, medical school. I worked for 20 years, um, believing that to be true. And then. I personally, as a fat person, have been going on a journey of like living <laughs> as a fat person who dieted regularly, was very capable of losing weight. I have never had a problem losing weight. I have had a problem maintaining that weight loss. I have always been able to lose, you know, two and a half, three stone quite quickly without much, I mean, it's not without much effort, with a lot of effort, but it wasn't that it couldn't do it. I could do it. I could maintain it for a while. And then I would find myself regaining again. And I, you know, used to think like, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong. And that's when I started looking into the science behind weight loss and found that actually it's pretty much everybody. I mean, this is not unique to me. This is almost every single person on the planet. You, if you look at every graph from every paper that's ever written, you will see that populations can lose weight and do lose weight, but they hit what we call the nadir, which is like the peak of weight loss. And then they start to regain and almost everybody regains all the weight that they've lost within five years, up to two thirds end up heavier than when they first started, which was me. Um, and that so weight loss is pretty much unsustainable for the most part. And every medical study that has attempted to find a way to, you know, get people to lose weight and keep it off has failed in that regard. So, you know, if it was just me, I'd be like, oh, it's a me problem. But since it's an everybody problem, I started thinking, well, if that's the case, why are doctors telling people to do this? I mean, if it's not going to work, why are we telling people? Um, does it really benefit our health? And I started looking, I looked at diabetes, at heart disease, at non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, at PCOS, at um, uh, what else? I look at arthritis and all the kind of conditions that we tend to associate with fatness and that we tend to tell people the solution here is to lose weight. So I went ahead and looked at the evidence and said, well, is it like, show me the evidence? And there isn't any, and there just, there just isn't any, even the evidence that our National Institute of Clinical Excellence, even the guidelines themselves, which reference evidence. When you look at the evidence, it is, it is, it is qualified or classified as very low to low quality because of the fact that there is so much bias and so many problems. Um, and so we can't really rely, the reliability of the evidence is very low. So here we are telling people to lose weight and there's not much evidence that it's working. There's not much evidence that it's helping people if it is working. Like if I lose weight, will I fix my non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Maybe for the first three months, your, your, your results might be a bit better. Maybe after six months they will, but after a year, two years, there's just no evidence that they will be. And then I was like, well, is there any harm in losing weight then? Because if, 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 if it's zero harm, it might work, but it might not, but at least it's not going to harm me in any way, then fine, I'll still do it because it makes sense, right? Like if there's nothing to lose, then why not carry on? The problem is that if you look at the studies, the harm associated with weight loss 
is is quite profound. Like, look at the studies of eating disorders, and and look at the studies uh, with about you know mental and emotional well being. Um, and then also nowadays, lots of studies are coming out that are saying people who are fluctuating in their weight are ending up with far worse long term metabolic consequences than the gains they get, the short term gains that they get from weight loss. Um, and there's more and more and more evidence to show this now. It's becoming quite obvious that when you look at chronic inflammation and you look at insulin resistance and you look at hormonal balance, actually weight fluctuations, which most of us experience if we're dieting and then gaining and then dieting and then gaining, um, are much worse for you than if you remain a stable weight, no matter what that stable weight is, no matter how high it is, it's better to sort of stick roughly at that weight. So that's what I've learned. And as a result, I'm like, well, that's not the information that I was taught. It's not the information that exists out there for doctors. It's not what we're telling our patients. And on top of that, you have this added layer of medical weight stigma, which is what I tend to focus on for the most part. And just quickly, if I've got time, I don't want to like just keep talking. But um, when, when I say medical weight stigma, a lot of people go, well, what's that? So fat phobia or anti-fat bias is basically the, uh, the the beliefs and the judgments and the assumptions that we make about people who are fat. In the same way we have beliefs and judgments about all sorts of people, these are specifically about fat people. And they are all negative, right? There are very few people that have positive judgments and beliefs and assumptions about fat people. So the negative judgments, assumptions and beliefs we have about fat people. Weight stigma is like the real life consequences or the punishment almost because of those beliefs. So as an example, you've got... Um, say somebody is interviewing for a job and the person that's interviewing them believes that fat people are lazy. Fat people don't, um, don't work well in a team. Fat people aren't the kind of people that we're looking for. Those beliefs are the anti-fat bias. Not giving the person the job is the weight stigma. And so the fact that statistically speaking, there is, for example, a wage gap, um, and there's proper evidence that fat people are far less likely to be employed, promoted, and all of these things. This exists throughout society, the social exclusion of fat people in general. You can take any cross-section of society and you'll be able to find it. But it's specific, it's very problematic within the medical um, and healthcare field. So studies have shown that doctors treat their fat patients differently. They are less likely to spend time with them, less likely to investigate them, less likely to treat them um, the same way as they do their leaner patients. And also... Fat people find it really hard to trust their doctors, unsurprisingly, because of the way their doctors treat them. So they're far less able to communicate effectively and are less likely to um, follow their doctor's advice and, most dangerously, tend to avoid doctors. And we understand why they do, because they just have really traumatic experiences, which they relate to me on a daily basis. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. And so I get why you wouldn't want to go back if that happened to you. Problem is, if you're not going to see your doctor, chances are down the line, that's going to impact your health. So all of this has led me to being interviewed by you, basically. There is so much for me to unpack there, but I want to start just with a clarification because you're painted as someone 
um, who, who believes that exercise and nutrition don't have an impact on, on weight management. But you're not actually saying that, are you? You're saying that these measures can help you lose weight. It's then the bounce back and the other, the other issues that, that come with it is, is your concern. Because you, you have been painted someone who says, you know, the headlines, you see them in the tabloids, exercise has no impact on weight loss, diet has no impact, yeah. but you don't believe them. I mean, it's quite the opposite. I know. I mean, exercise is probably in terms of weight loss, probably slightly less evidence based. For your health, I think the evidence for exercise is uh, pretty difficult to ignore. I, I mean, I, just in general, just, you know, and health is a very nebulous concept that we could get into if you want to. But but just, you know, if, in terms of your cardiovascular health, your joint health it, and your mental health, exercise is great. Uh, exercise is also useful for weight loss probably not as effective for weight loss in terms of actual losing weight itself rather than um, uh, trying to maintain muscle mass, which is a completely separate issue. But the I would say the only way uh, to lose weight is to do it through diet, through a calorie restriction. And it is effective. And actually, if you look at all of the studies, the most amount of weight is lost in the first three months, right? Like you tend to, like if you just stop, you know, you reduce your calorie intake by 500 calories, you have to lose weight. Like it's a very few people won't. And there will be some people that don't. There will be some people who have a medical condition that prevent them from doing so. But like, I don't know. I don't know a statistic, but I'm guessing like 99% of the population, if they reduce the amount that they eat and they, and they exercise, they will lose weight. Um, and they will consistently lose weight for the first few months. And then they will hit a plateau, usually between the three to six month mark, they will hit a plateau. And then they will hit the peak, the nadir, and then they will start to regain. Does that's Not because they've stopped exercising or stopped with the calorie deficit, they will continue to regain. And, and we know this because even things like weight loss injections, so semaglutide, which is, which is Wigovi, if you even look at those studies, if you stay on those drugs for two years, there's a study that looked at two years, you see this massive weight loss and it's significantly more than if you just went on a diet alone. And then you see it starts to plateau and then you see it hit a peak around the one year mark. And then you start to see the regain. And this is not people who have stopped the injections. These are people who are continuing on the injections. And I think if even with these injections, you start to regain weight after a certain point, I just think it shows that our bodies do not feel comfortable, for want of a better word, losing weight for a prolonged period of time. Our bodies go, oh, hang on, this isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. And they don't understand that we're fat. They don't understand that we live in the 21st century where for most of us, food scarcity is no longer an issue. Um, our bodies have got thousands and thousands and thousands of years of you know, evolutionary programming that say, no, we're going to hold on to this weight one way or the other. And studies show that things happen, your basal metabolic rate changes and this changes and your insulin pathway changes, your hormones change, all sorts of things happen to cause that weight loss to plateau and then to start to regain again. And I'm completely on, on board with that. I mean, you've alluded there to set point theory where we mm -hmm. naturally gravitate to a certain weight. What I'm struggling to get my head around, Ashley, is if someone is, let's say, your example on a 500 calorie deficit mm -hmm. and they drop weight for three to six months, I would say my instinct would be that they should start to gain weight because their adherence dropped off. Maybe they stopped going to the gym, doing the exercise, certain dietary habits crept back in. But your point would be that if they maintain that 500 calorie deficit 
eventually their weight would go back up. And that's where I'm struggling to get my head around it because of the whole energy balance. Right. How can you gain weight if you're not, you're not eating more? I get that your uh, metabolism will change. There'll be shifts there. Your body might be more efficient at music, using fuel, but not to the extent you would start gaining weight. Can you help me understand where you're coming from there? So I, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you from a, from a kind of like basic physics point of view, you know, energy in an energy out like it just you know it doesn't compute but that's my point the body is far more intelligent than that and i think again the weight loss injunctions really do help to clarify things for us because i can understand that you know say you're doing a study where you look at a whole bunch of people and they're all on a 500 kilo um, calorie diet but like you say after six months that drops off you start sneaking in a mars bar because that's what happens um so Weight loss injections, you are literally injecting that into your body. You know, it's unlikely that everybody in the study stopped doing that at six months. They continued with those injections for two years. So even if they were eating more, even if they were going, stopping going to the gym, which theoretically they weren't because they were being monitored on a monthly basis. But even if they did, that would, the, that wouldn't explain why the injection stopped working. And I, I think that there, I mean, I'm, we're not experts. We don't know. The answer to the question is actually, we don't know. We could talk about gut biome. We can talk about genetics. We can talk about the fact that there are probably certain genes that get switched on in certain circumstances. We could talk about basal metabolic rate and how important it is. But actually, in answer to your question though, is it not a moot point? If everybody on the planet pretty much struggles to maintain weight loss, whether it's because their, you know, their body, because of physiological changes or because psychologically it's impossible to maintain a calorie deficit. Does it matter? If it's not working for pretty much everyone, does it matter? Uh, You know, uh, let's take smoking. Um, If it was impossible to get people to stop smoking, like we tried and we tried and we tried everything we could do, but like nothing ever worked. Would it be fair to keep asking people to stop smoking? Probably not, because for whatever reason, it doesn't matter if it's psychological, it doesn't matter if it's happy, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not working for the vast majority of people. But smoking rates have dropped and they are, the government are still enforcing legislation to try and I- increase the age at which you can buy cigarettes. Yeah. So. But it's not, but, but weight hasn't dropped. Weight's, weight's going up. Like it hasn't worked. That's my point. We know that, we know that the stop smoking initiatives are working. We have evidence to show that, okay, not for everybody and not necessarily on an individual level, but on a population level, our efforts to get people to stop smoking, whether it's preventing people from starting in the first place or whether it's, um, whether it's, sort of managing people who are smoking, like they've worked. And a lot of the government, you know, things that the government doing work. What's happened over the last 30 years? We've been absolutely obsessed with quote unquote childhood obesity and, um, and have been doing all of this stuff. Like the children's police, lunch boxes are policed nowadays in schools. We've got teachers, children, teaching children as young as five, what's healthy and what's not healthy. And that's been going on for a long time. We've had a national, um, children measurement program. We've been talking about this so-called war on obesity for 30, 40 years. What has happened? We as a society have got fatter. So my point is every intervention we have tried up until today has not worked. It's not the same as smoking. We've seen smoking rates go down. We've seen weight go up. So you've got to ask, is it just that the whole of the world just refuse to get on board with this idea? Even though we know as fat people being, being thin is 
is, is every fat person's dream in a way, because then we get treated better. We will be treated like better human beings. So there is an absolute desire to be thinner there. There is a motivation. It's not a stick. It's a carrot. It's, we're not, you know, we're not doing this because we like feel that we have to. We're doing this because we want to be treated better. So if everybody has a desire to lose weight and has tried everything they can imagine, and I have tried every diet known to man. And by diet, I mean, I've tried calorie restriction. I've tried cutting out carbs. Um, I, I've had that gym membership. I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do. And I'm desperate to lose weight and it's still not working. And don't tell me I don't have will. Oh, no, no, you wouldn't say that, Joe. But if people say, well, you lack the willpower, I'm like, mate, it was not easy for me to get to where I was in medical school. It wasn't like it was a piece of cake. I do have willpower. I have the ability to stick at things. It's not worked and I'm not unique. This is happening to everybody basically around the world. You've got to ask yourself if it's really not working and we've tried everything and it's not working, why are we still doing it? There must be another way. I want to pick up something you just mentioned uh, earlier on in our call um, about the, the lack of quality information around obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, early death. There is, in my opinion, and again, this isn't about me, I'm just the one asking the questions, but my understanding is there is uh, an overwhelming amount of information that does link obesity and excess body fat and body composition that leads towards fat towards an increased risk of all-death all mortality. Are you saying that information is wrong? And if so, why is there so much of it? I don't think there is that much of that information. I disagree with that. I think that we have a lot of population-based studies that show that fat people have, uh, are, that, let me sort of say in plain English, that if you look at, at the population of type 2 diabetics, there will be disproportionate numbers of fat people in that population. I also agree that if you look at the, the group of fat people, there will be disproportionate numbers of people with diabetes compared to lean people. I agree with that. But we we cannot, and I mean, people often say kind of causation, association is not causation. I, I want to take it further than that. It isn't, and we know that. That's a very simplified way of saying it. We have to ask ourselves, is there a reason why we'll take diabetes, why there are more fat people that di are diabetic? And the questions we have to ask ourselves are, as I'm sure you know, is diabetes caused by being fat? Is being fat caused by diabetes? Could there be something else that is causing both being fat and being diabetic? And could this evidence be spurious? Okay, this, it's not spurious evidence. There's too much of it. It's overwhelming amounts of evidence. So we've got to go back to our first three. So you, we look at that evidence and we assume diabetes is caused by being fat. No one ever says is fat caused by being diabetic, even though we know for a fact that insulin resistance is going to lead to excess um, adiposity simply because we turn blood sugar into fat, like in the liver. That's what happens. So it could be that diabetes causes fat, but that wouldn't explain why fat people aren't diabetic and then become diabetic. So there's more to it than that. Okay, so could there be something else that causes you to be both fat and diabetic? And that is where the real evidence lies. So if you look at chronic inflammation, uh, allostatic load, and, you know, uh, nowadays there's a term that I've seen recently, metaflammation, which I find 
fabulous. It just uh, gives all sorts of amazing vibes of, yeah, metaflammation, like just chronic inflammation everywhere. We know that that is associated with insulin resistance. We also know that it's associated with weight cycling. We also know that it's associated with stress. We also know that it's associated with oppression. So could it cause both being fat and being diabetic? Yes, it could. What about hormonal imbalances and PCOS? What about um, like, you know, I could go on and on and on. But my point is there are there are confounding factors here that are never accounted for in the evidence. And if they're not accounted for, then the evidence is not credible. So two things that I will say is that weight stigma absolutely can account for all of the um, differences uh, that, that we found in the NAIN study. So people who don't, who aren't aware, the NAIN study or NHANES study was a really big study, which we base a lot of our information off, right? There has, there is now been, there is now evidence that if you can, if you adjust for, um, uh, for weight cycling, I believe, then that would explain all of your results. Um, we can't adjust for weight stigma because it's really difficult to do. But if we're not adjusting for these things, if we're not even considering them within our literature, then we have a whole bunch of very biased literature and we are drawing conclusions from that very biased literature that is not fair and is not right. And we don't do that in other areas of medicine. I, I don't understand why we do it in weight loss and when it comes to weight medicine, but we don't do it in other areas of medicine. It's not fair. When we adjust, we adjust for smoking. We adjust for like geography, sometimes for race, but we never look at the factors that play a massively important role in this. For example, weight stigma, weight cycling, chronic inflammation, stress, oppression, all of that stuff. It's very easy to, to criticise the research and the science, I think more so than ever since since COVID, where science has almost had a, had a target on its back. And you can look at research, you can cherry pick results. I get all of that. And I don't wish this question to be facetious, but if there is not a link between obesity and, and, and longevity, why don't we see many fat 75-year-olds? Um, why do people get older? They tend to be to, to be on the, on the thinner, the leaner side. Because we lose weight as we get younger. So first of all, people say to me, you don't see fat older people i'm like have you been to a nursing home recently because i have like i've worked in residential homes and i've worked in nursing homes and this idea that we just don't see them is not helpful because it's not true but even if you're looking at the data i agree we tend to lose weight you know come sort of 70s certainly 80s we, we lose the vast majority of weight what i'm curious to know is were these people ever fat like where's the data about looking at people who were fat in their 50s and it's now 75, 80. Because, um, yeah, I agree with you. We tend to lose weight when we get older, but that doesn't mean that they weren't fat when they were 40 or 30. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this whole phenomenon, I think, where a lot of doctors kind of will say, well, just look around you. Look at, you know, look at the, look at, look at, look at the COVID wards. Look at the, look at the residential homes. There are no fat people here. Only thin people live to be. That's completely the opposite. If you break your hip, for example, which is a common thing that happens when you're old, you're 35% more likely to leave the hospital if you are obese. That's some good odds. When you're older, and we know this as doctors and nurses, we know this. When you're 80, we want you to have some fat on you because we know you're far more likely to, to survive and to thrive in your 80s, to be able to withstand things like falls, uh, heart failure, kidney failure, all of these things. We know if you're, if you need dialysis, we know you're going to do much better if you're fat. If you're thin, we know you have much less of a chance. And that's just, that's anecdotal knowledge, but it's also what the studies show as well. So this idea that there aren't, there are fat old people, but even if there weren't fat older people, the fatter you are, the healthier you are when you're old. 
What about hunter-gatherer societies that we can we can look at for a real day? You're smiling already because you knew this question was coming. But I mean, we look at if we if we examine their diets, their lifestyle, their body fat levels, their body composition, we see a very different picture to what we see in the West. How can you begin to account for these differences? So what we're doing now is we're comparing societies that have absolutely no influence or very little influence from you know compared to this society, the society you and I live in. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, of course. Again, I, 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 I'm not doubting that. I'm not trying to argue that um, that this is how I would look if I lived in a world where I was a hunter gatherer. But I don't. I, I mean, I live in the 21st century. I work predominantly from home, like you do. Um, I. Uh, it, it, there's no point in comparing me to that person. I absolutely agree that something has happened to make the world fatter over the last hundred years. Like, there's no question. And it's probably a combination of, um, the foods that we're consuming, the fact that we're sedentary, the, you know, all of these things. I, I'm not, I'm not, I've never once questioned that. I'm sure that's true. But the point is we are all sedentary, not just fat people. Like, Everybody is sedentary in, in general. Of course, there are some people that, that move more than others. The assumption that fat people don't move, though, is not true. And also, if we are collectively living in a world where we have to sit at our desks for eight hours a day, because that's what we have to do in order to survive, to earn money, to live. If we're living in a world where people nowadays have less and less, even though they're earning more and more in a world where, you know, CEOs are now making a thousand times what their workers own uh, earned as opposed to 50 years ago. Like we know the society that we're living in. I have no doubt that that's making us fatter. But like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do about that? That's, that's the question I keep asking. Look, folks, I don't disagree with you. But so what? It's it. There is no way to fix that. You can't ask me to, to live like a hunter gatherer. But in 21st century UK, like we don't live like that. So yes, I hear where you're coming from and I agree with you. I think it's very obvious that people who have a completely different lifestyle to me are going to have very different body composition to me, but it's because they have a different lifestyle to me and I can't change my lifestyle. I can make certain changes. And that's what we've talked about at the beginning. I think was one of the first questions you asked me is like, it's not that I don't think you should make lifestyle changes. It's not that I think you can't make lifestyle changes. It's not even that I think lifestyle changes won't work. I absolutely believe that being more physically active is, you know, no doubt going to benefit you in multiple ways. I would never presume to tell you not to be physically active. But what I will say is that it is a far more complex than that. If you're having to work two jobs or if you're a busy person that works all day, works really, really hard, doesn't have that much money, is, you know, really struggling to make ends meet at the moment, which is a lot of people. You're going to have a small amount of time, energy and finances, and you have to decide what to do with that. You have to make an individual decision about what you're going to do with that. Society tells you prioritise exercise and nutrition. Spend that money on a gym membership or on, you know, avoiding quote-unquote ultra-processed food and do this, do that. That's what society will tell you to do. Prioritise your health. And by health, they mean your cardiovascular, your metabolic, and possibly your joint health. They don't mean health. Health is far more than physical. It is mental, emotional, social, environmental, financial. It's all sorts of things. But society tells you your blood pressure, your cholesterol, these are things you need to prioritise. Whereas I would argue 
I mean, maybe, or maybe you might want to spend what little time, energy and reserves you have on having fun, going out and having a blast. Will that make you thinner? Definitely not. But will it improve your overall health? Maybe, because it might be helping your mental and emotional and social health. And so I just think that everybody should have the right, the autonomous right to decide whether or not they want to invest their time and energy and stuff in exercising, in doing, uh, you know, calorie deficits, etc., or whether they prefer to invest that time, energy, etc., into something else. And that society should treat these people equally. That's all I'm arguing for, is that if I make an autonomous decision to say, I'm not dieting, I'm going to eat as many cheeseburgers as I like, and I'm going to sit down and watch TV all day, it is my choice, and I shouldn't be punished for making that choice. There are counter arguments to that. I'd love to discuss it, but that's what I'm basically arguing. A lot of people, I don't want to, I'll, I'll rephrase that because I, I don't know a lot of people, but some people who are overweight or obese will say that they don't feel very happy with their weight. They're not happy with their life. Is your argument, Ashley, that then that's not a physiological mental response to them being obese? That's them feeling the, sh- the external shame of society more so. Where do you think the needle is on why people who are overweight say they're unhappy? I mean, like, don't you just have to ask them individually? Like, I, I guess as a doctor, I'm used to asking people that question. I think it's a really good question. And I think that ultimately... There will be some people that will say to me, I am not comfortable in my body because my joints ache or because I struggle to wipe my bottom when I go to the toilet or because my mobility is, la- is limited or because, you know, like people will give me a reason. And I always ask, like, give me the specifics. You know, let's dig down. Let's actually explore this. And in some cases, I think that the reason is genuinely because of the way I feel in my body or the way that I see, perceive myself, the way that others perceive me. And I, I have a, I mean, one thing I make very clear to people is that I am not anti-weight loss. Uh, and everyone thinks I am. Everyone thinks like this doctor hates people who lose weight. Most of the people I work with have either had weight loss surgery or considering weight loss surgery or on weight loss injections, have been on diets, are currently on diets. I literally, I have never, ever treated anyone differently because that's what they choose. I am not anti-weight loss. I am pro-autonomy. So when we talk about these things, I think as long as a conversation is, 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 is occurring, where if someone says to me, I want to lose weight, and I say, cool, why? And they say to me, because I'm bloody miserable and I just want to lose weight. I'm like, okay, fine. I hear you. That's your right. And I will respect that. And I will support that. And I will, I will, I will be there 100% of the way and I will never treat you differently. But also if people are saying to me, I need to lose weight because my doctor told me that I need to lose weight or because I'm worried that I'm going to have a heart attack or because this is going to happen. Then I'm like, okay, well, this is more of an information issue. And then of course we know that weight stigma in society is making us miserable. So again, like I said, as a human being, being thin is more of like a, a desire than a, something I'm being forced into doing, you know, it is like, it, it, it will cure a lot. It will solve a lot of my problems. People will take me more seriously. I will get more likes on Instagram. I will be able to make more money. If I wanted to get rich, I'd sell weight loss. Like, of course, that's the way to to do it. So, uh, you know, ultimately the question is, it depends on the, the answer to the question is, it depends on the individual, but I do think that as long as we're having the conversation and talking about do you think you need to lose weight or are other people pressuring you into losing weight? That's 
As, as someone who's asked that question to a lot of your patients, let me turn the tables. You, you've mentioned before that you've had, you know, you've dieted, you've tried every single kind of diet. Are, are you happy with how you're feeling or is it something, you know, is it something, was there a moment where you came to accept uh, who you were and what your weight was? Talk to me about your personal experience of, of weight loss and, and your journey. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. So uh, there will be moments now and I would say that they happen very infrequently where I just think, oh, it would be so much easier. And then I have to remind myself, but I tried and 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 it made me really miserable. I mean, it brought me to the place of, 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 of deep depression, um, of suicidal ideation, of actual failed attempts at unaliming myself. It wasn't just, I'm not going to just say it was about dieting because that feels like, you know, it's, there's a lot of other things, complex stuff going on underneath, but, absolutely push me in that direction. When I have been at my lowest, it's always when I've been at my hungriest. Um, and so it brought out, I would like to say, the depression in me. Um, there's something for me about being able to accept, look, there's just some things I can't change. So I'm going to focus on the things that I can change. I exercise every day without fail. I, I, there isn't a day that I, well, no, that's not true. Come on now. Like I'm a human being. There are days when I just sit on the sofa and do nothing. Like, okay. And there's a very important, those rest days, very important to me, but I do, I do some form of physical activity as, you know, as it, that would be described as exercise every single day. I, I'm somebody that does generally tend to cook, cook my food from scratch that is quite, you know, interested in gentle nutrition. So I'm not, I don't beat myself over the head and say, you can't have that or you can't have that. But equally, I would say I have a very balanced diet. I'm getting all of my macros, all of my nutrients. I don't tend to overindulge in certain things because I'm not restricting myself anymore. I, you know, you could stick a bag of chocolate in front of me now and I'm like, no, you know, cause I could have it any day. So I might have it on days that I'm really craving it. Most days I probably wouldn't. So I, I'm at a place where I think I'm actually probably my healthiest in terms of, uh, my mental and emotional well-being, but also in terms of, you know, the fact that I'm resting, that I'm getting enough sleep and that I am taking care of myself, that I'm exercising every day. It's great for my mental health. So I'm doing all of those things. And I've come to a place where I've accepted that may or may not change my body at all. I'm not measuring it, so I don't know. All I know is that I'm doing everything that I can do as a human being, as me, with all of the, you know, pressures of my life, to take care of myself and nurture myself. And I've never been happier or more confident. It doesn't mean that life is easy. It just means I've never been more content when I, you know, as, as I, as I have been since I finally kind of accepted that this is my body and it's probably not going to change. I mean, it will change, but, but, but I won't have any control over it. I'll, it will just change. And I've just got either accept it or not, you know? You've suffered a lot of online abuse and criticism and mockery. Has it all been worth it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Like, no, not a single moment have I doubted whether it was worth it because there are people out there, you know, I hate to say it, it's a shame that they feel this way, that they need a doctor to say these things to them, that it, you know, that you're okay as you're, it's okay to be you, to be human, to not be able to do these things, you know, to, to, they need to hear you shouldn't have been treated that way. Your doctors shouldn't have mocked you or poked you or told you that you couldn't have treatment or, you know, said these things to you. They shouldn't have lied to you. They shouldn't have misinformed you. They shouldn't have just blamed everything on your weight. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I wish they didn't need a doctor to tell them that because 
this gives credence to the idea that doctors are special, which I don't particularly think we are. I think we're just doing a job no more or less special than any other job. But I think that people have needed it. And people have said to me, because of the work that you're doing, I, I'm going back to my doctor. You know, there are so many people who have come to me and said, I have this funny mole or I have a lump in my breast or something, and I don't want to go and see my doctor. And I've just talked to them and I've signposted them to some of the information that I have. And I've been like, please, please just go, just go. And they've gone. And to me, it's worth any amount of online trolling and abuse because that person could have had breast cancer. And in some cases, it wasn't breast cancer, but they did have conditions that were treated. And I think, well, that was worth it then. You know, if I can do that for 10 people, then I feel like it's worth it. You've got some really interesting views and you make some really strong, great points. But social media is not really the forum for that because it's instant bite size, it's criticism. Do you feel that sometimes your message, because I came into this call, Asher, fundamentally misunderstanding some of your positions because I've only seen you really on social media and you see those bite-sized clips. Do you feel that sometimes your messaging and your really important messaging around societal shame and, and the other you know, intrinsic disadvantages fat people face is lost because of the, the top line yeah. uh, kind of sound bites that you get? And, and how are you working to kind of readjust that? So I, I think that, listen, I didn't join social media until I was 40. I didn't have an Instagram account. I think I had an old Facebook account that I never looked at, but I didn't have Insta. I didn't have TikTok. I didn't have any of these things. I did it when I got on, sort of started blogging because it started off as a blog and then a podcast and it's kind of evolved from there. Um, I have a really good friend who is uh, very kind of well-respected and has a very senior position in, in PR and has done, I've known him since we were 15. And um, we talked about this. I was like, I hate this. I hate social media. It's terrifying. If nothing else, I'm scared of all the younger people who are cooler than me. And we talked about the fact that actually sometimes bad press is is some press and that actually there are going to be people who just think who the heck is this Britain's most outrageous and most dangerous doctor like I would like you know I want to uh, to get to know them and then hopefully come and find you know hours of my podcast recordings where I've actually talked about this or interviews like I've done with you Joe because you were kind enough to interview me um, where people go oh actually I, I see the Twitter posts that are sometimes very controversial. I am a disruptor. I said it at the beginning. I am a disruptor. I say things sometimes intentionally and deliberately to get people to pay attention. But beneath the social media veneer, which exists in this world, and we either work with it or we don't work, um, I, I couldn't. No one would know who I was if it weren't for social media. But at the same time, I've got myself a bit of a bad reputation. If I was just being really sweet and lovely and kind on social media, again, no one would know who I was. So it's unfortunately swings and roundabouts. People who get to know me and listen to what I, I and read the things I've written and listen to the things that I say generally tend to go, oh, you're not half as bad as I thought you were. And that's great. That's, you know, in that case, social media has worked. So it's very much a strategic play to get the attention and then hope that the people that you feel need the advice the most will stick around. You know that some people are going to come in, criticise and then sod off again, but that's fine so long as the people that need you find yes. you. Yes. And also, I mean, that's part of it. And I also think that, you know, when when people are being mistreated, like, I mean, we'll, we'll take uh, a different group of people that have nothing to do with me. Uh, we'll take black people. Um, we know that black people are treated poorly. So take black people in the US, okay? That specific group of people who experience and have experienced the most violent of oppression for hundreds of years, who continue to this day experience so much um, systemic and, 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 and 
systemic racism, white supremacy, and all of the stuff they're facing on their day-to-day lives, all the microaggressions and all of that stuff. You look at all the incredible people involved in the movements for black liberation, you know, anti-racism and all of that work. Sometimes it's like they have to swing the pendulum in the other way. So Black Lives Matter was a classic example. A lot of people went, well, why did Black Lives Matter and not other lives matter as well? Because we have to swing in the other way just to sort of bring us into the middle eventually, like for justice and equity and all of these things to happen. Sometimes we have to go in the absolute opposite direction. And I guess I'm not comparing myself to these incredible anti-racists. You understand, of course I'm not. But I think sometimes I say things that may seem almost too extreme and and you know people will say oh ash is an extremist and i probably am but extremism and violence is sometimes the only way to um to shift the narrative and every single time we've seen you know movements and 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 we've seen kind of people being driven forwards and 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 making gains and making society a better place it hasn't been through being nice and moderate. It has been through being rather extreme and quite creative. That's why I said being Britain's most outrageous doctor is massively affirming for me because I, at the moment, am struggling with a GMC investigation into me that has nothing to do with my fitness practice. I've never, ever made a mistake with a patient that has qualified for an investigation. Uh, I've never had a serious complaint in my 20 years of medicine. The GMC are investigating me for several reasons, but one of them is that, that I'm not, that they, that people have complained that I am not safe. I have been accused of being unsafe around cisgender people because of my views about being trans. I am trans. I've been accused of being unsafe around white people because of my views around anti-racism. I'm not just <laughs> being accused of, um, of, of of being outrageous in, in terms of my beliefs. In fact, I'm not actually being investigated uh with um because of my beliefs around um uh, obesity like that that's literally nothing to do with it they have never investigated me for that the gmc have made it very clear that i'm well within my rights as long as i am showing evidence which i am they they would never investigate me for that no i'm being investigated for being a disruptor and i'm all right with that i am comfortable for people to call into question my character and um all of those things because i think sometimes that's what happens. You get people calling into question your credibility when they can't deny that some of the things you're saying make sense. So it's also a very serious thing for for that investigation to be going on. Though, what, what are they basing that on? Because yeah, it's. I mean, it's just. It's nothing. I, I don't think it's that serious. It's serious, of course, but it's not like I'm going to lose my license. Serious, but I. I mean, at the moment, but yeah, I mean, it. it the things that they are looking into me for very much revolve around my social media and how I behave on social media. And that's why I mentioned it, because you brought up the fact that social media isn't the best place. And I agree with you, it isn't. It's definitely not the place to have a nuanced conversation. And it's also not the place that people should be going to get their information. Like I, I you know, people who are going to social media to be informed, I think that's problematic. That's not where you should be going to get your information. But it is a way of um of for people to find other people it's a way of 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 meeting people as it were right um, it's a way of getting my voice heard and yeah so in a way i have to play the game and in the way i have to be quite 
firm. I've only got 204, well, not anymore, I'm not Twitter, but, you know, I've only got a certain amount of space to say what I want to say. I have to be as succinct as possible. And sometimes I'm going to say things that people won't like. But I obviously, um, you know, there is more to what I have to say than what's in that tiny little bite size piece of information. Well, we've spoken before about, you know, the research and, and your belief that there's not such a strong link between obesity and some of the, the critical long-term chronic health issues. Why is the entire medical profession taking a polar opposite view then to you? Why are you the disruptor? Why is everyone else saying that you shouldn't be overweight, you need to lose weight? Why is that narrative continuously coming from the medical profession? So one of the people that you really need to talk to is Reagan Chastain. She works over in the States and she, I mean, she is where I get a lot of my, you know, she's the one that shares the studies with me. She's the one that um, really helps me to, to sort of, sometimes when I'm looking at evidence, helps me to sort of, because she's much better, is her bread and butter. It's what she does. It's her job is, is, is analyzing evidence. Um, but we talk about this a lot that it, it, we should live in a world where we can trust all of the evidence that's presented to us. Uh, the, the guidelines and cause as a doctor, I don't have time to read through a 100 page bit of information, right? I'm looking at the, the, the front sheet, the summary, the bullet points, the bits in the boxes, you know, like an, like any other person, I am looking at the bite-sized version, the social media version almost. And sometimes actually, I hate to say it, but sometimes it is the social media version. Sometimes it is the tweet about the study that I read because I don't have time to go and read the study. There are hundreds of studies. Who has time to read them all? Um, so we have to be able to trust that the guidelines that are being produced, that there are no external influences, right? That they are simply being produced based on the evidence that has been critically appraised. And that would mean that there was no pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies or medical technology companies involved in the process. That would mean, because they have vested interests, that would mean that the people who are making the guidelines don't have their own biases, or if they do have biases, are taking steps to ensure that those biases are not affecting the way they interpret evidence. In order, all of these things would have to happen, and they don't happen. Medical guidance and, and literature doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is written by people with their own biases, uh, confirmation bias, we all know what that is. But also, it is heavily influenced by drug companies. And a classic example of that is that a lot of people who recently, over the last two years or so, underwent training in the UK uh, about, I don't know if it was called weight management or obesity management, but th this was some title. Uh, it was advertised on LinkedIn. Thousands of healthcare professionals, allied healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses underwent that training, um, came out of there believing what they believe, feeling very informed. I now know what I'm supposed to do when I have a fat patient sitting in front of me. This is great. And then the, nose, the news broke that Novo Nordisk, the company that makes weight loss drugs, has sponsored it. And they didn't make that known at the time because those of us who have training that is sponsored by a drug company at least are able to say, okay, well, I'm going to take this with a pinch of salt because the drug company is involved here. But they didn't know. So they went in there and they learned what they learned and they walked away and they carried that into their professional lives. But it was Novo Nordisk who illegally, and I say illegally because it is not legal, to um to do these things without disclosing the truth they got into a lot of trouble with that right like they've had their wrists slapped and they've you know the that there's there's been some consequences but not severe enough consequences to deter them from doing it again and also the damage is done so you know it's 
it's not happening in a vacuum. Most of my colleagues really want to do the right thing. Uh, you know, like who who wants to do the wrong thing? They want to do the right thing. Uh, they have no reason to want to force people to lose. In fact, it's really, really hard conversation to have because you're telling somebody to lose weight, which is super awkward. And then like, cool, how can you show me how to do it that works? Not really. Um, it's not a great conversation to have. It's not a great conversation to have six months later when they started regaining and they're weeping in your office. What have I done? Like, no one wants to have this conversation. And studies have shown that doctors tend to avoid the conversation because they don't want to have the conversation. Totally understandable. But um, they want to do the right thing. They want the truth, but they're not given the truth. And until doctors are given the, the truth that isn't influenced by those who have a vested interest, a financial vested interest in weight loss, then, well, you know, we're never going to get anywhere. So that's the real truth. I'm conscious of time, Ash, just a final question. You're seen by many people as a hero in the body positivity <laughs> movement, right? Uh, I mean, you, you are. People, people clearly look up to you and, and are very grateful for, for what you're saying and, and, and telling the truth in their mind. Do you ever worry that, what if you're wrong? What happens yeah. if there is a link between obesity and a shortened life and you're giving these people who are desperate for help, you're removing agency, personal responsibility from their lives and ultimately they're going on a path where they might not be able to lose the weight and, and keep it off. Does that, do you ever lie awake at night thinking, am I, am I going to be on the right side here? Yeah, am I on the right side of history? Absolutely. Like, I mean, if you're not worrying about that, then you probably shouldn't be doing any form of activism, right? Because the whole point of dialectical thinking is always asking yourself, but what if I'm wrong? But what if I'm wrong? But what if I'm wrong? And I do to the best of my ability, you know, I don't just look at evidence and go, this is cool. I'll use that. I, you know, I do read it. I do my due diligence is what I'm trying to say. I do my due diligence and I try my best, but of course I'm conscious of the fact that I may be wrong. I hate the idea that I'm a hero. I don't like, I mean, that, that makes me feel quite icky. I also hope that people don't just think to themselves, oh, Asha has said it, so it must be true. Like I don't, I do not encourage people to do that. Um, I always talk about autonomy. I always talk about I always talk about the four pillars of medical ethics. I always say to people, this is what you should be expecting of your doctors. This is what you should be looking at when you're looking at evidence. Always do a cost benefit analysis. Always remember that population studies are not the same as, you know, individual risk. We cannot, we cannot infer individual risk just from population studies. Like always remember that there isn't ever going to be a right or a wrong. Like right or wrong doesn't exist in this, that there isn't a right or wrong way. So, I do lay awake. Well, I don't lay awake at night, so I'm trying to sleep. But I do think of that. Yes, it is definitely crosses my mind. What if I'm absolutely wrong? And if I am absolutely wrong, you know, I'm going to be the first person to put my hands up and say, "I am." Look, I found this study, and it turns out I was absolutely wrong. Um, but at the same time, I also think, "But what if I am right?" There aren't that many people talking about this. So if I'm right, then I'm one of the only people that is talking about the things that should be talked about more and more. And I'm not the only doctor. Like I have plenty of doctor friends who agree with me, just not wanting to be so vocal on social media. And I totally understand why, like it's not fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, don't we all think that? Look into, looking into your crystal ball in 20, 30 years time with the advances that we're going to make in science and research, AI, all the other things that are coming. What's the conversation around obesity going to be? Have you watched Wally, the cartoon? Yes. Right. 
That, that was not, that was not a, a, a question back I was expecting. No, have, yeah. yeah. So you watched it, right? Like, I, I hope everyone's watched it because it's very cute. I, I mean, in the, in the movie, in the cartoon, um, society has evolved. We're li- they're living on a spaceship and they have these chairs where they don't do anything and they're just basically very sedentary. And the idea is they all get really, really fat because they're not moving. Um, and I think about this a lot. I think about the fact that technology is progressing at some phenomenal rate. Like, you know, AI has changed the game. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, well, it wouldn't be 20 years ago now, but like the internet changed the game. Smartphones changed the game. It's, it's, it's been quite impressive in our lifetime. I have witnessed some phenomenal changes and you know, I'm a parent and I often think about like what I was doing when I was eight years old versus or 10 years old versus what my 10 year old does. Like a very, very different lives. Rather than casting judgment and aspersions, I'm just like, I recognize it's very different. So another 40 years from now, I mean, my goodness, I can't even begin to think because there's no way I could have predicted what was going to happen when I was 10 years old and like pressing record on my tape player because I heard a song on the radio that I really liked and I wanted to keep. Like, and that was completely illegal, but that's what I would do. I, I did, had no idea that I'd be able to go onto Spotify and download my, that song, you know, when I was 40. I think when you look at Wally, the thing that I find so interesting about it is it's a lot of people kind of will judge all of those fat people sitting in their like lounges that move around and sort of go, oh, look at them. They've really let themselves go. Whereas actually the whole point is they're living on a spaceship and that's how they're getting around. Like that's just life. Someone invented that. And rather than blaming the people who have become so sedentary and are eating all they can eat because that's all, you know, because that's what's available to them, rather than thinking, oh, that's a personality defect. That's a, shouldn't we be asking the question? Well, who invented it in the first place? I'm, I think. We need to be holding the people who are creating all of these technological advances to account and asking them, like, what are you doing to society? You're doing it for profit. I get it. But what are you doing to society as a whole? Rather than blaming society for people for being a sort of, you know, the direct result of the society that they live in, I think we need to start asking, well, the people who are making the decisions about society in first place, like, are we looking into them? Are we, are we, are we checking their bank accounts? Are we, are we checking about, you know, how, how, you know, their, their dealings, et cetera? I don't know that I could predict 30 years in the future. I think it's impossible, but I have no, issue saying that that rich people will keep getting richer and will be making decisions that will impact human beings we'll probably be living longer than we've ever lived before right because medical advances are incredible and i you know we're we're getting older and older and older and older i don't see why that would suddenly change uh barring you know the third world war and nuclear barring all of these things but um at the same time i think People will continue to get fat. I don't see a period of time where we'll stop getting fatter and suddenly become thin, unless they do actually invent a cure for fatness. But I don't see, un- unless that's that happens, I don't see how we won't just continue to get fatter because we'll become more and more sedentary. I read that somewhere now that in the UK, Amazon drones are going to come and drop something off like an hour after you've like, if that's what our lives will be like 20 years from now, where we like press a button and Amazon will come and drop it off via drone. We'll never even have to walk to the supermarket, walk around the supermarket with a trolley. Like to me, that's 
definitely going to impact society, isn't it? And the, and the ones who have the money and the resources to pay for the gym membership and have two hours a day to go somewhere because you know, we're overcrowded, it's like to go somewhere and exercise and, you know, get nice fresh food for, you know, all of that stuff will continue to be able to do that. And the rest of the people who simply don't have the resources to do so, their lives will get worse and worse and worse and worse. And their health will probably suffer as a result. 